HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. As a show dedicated to the hospitality industry, I'm so excited to introduce our new podcast sponsor, Talk. Talk is your all-in-one platform for reservations, takeout, and event management. Reach millions of guests, eliminate no-shows, and drive revenue for your business. Make the switch to Talk today at exploretalk.com slash join. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. This week's episode of Meat in 3 is inspired by the reemergence of Cicada Brood 10. We're talking all about insects. Some people are calling crickets the gateway bug because that's a great introduction to what edible insects is all about. So we found detectable levels of cesium-137 in 68 of 122 total honey samples that we had. Ah, what is that? Is it tarantula? No, what is it? It's a tarantula. Oh, and they're going to eat it? No, 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 no. Listen to Meat in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It is Wednesday, June 9th, 2021. This is our 291st episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a wonderful chef and entrepreneur who is considered one of the country's most authoritative voices on Mexican sweets, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to invest in Instagram. And by this, I don't mean financially, but by your commitment. Social media is a terrific tool for promoting your brand and connecting with your audience. And Instagram continues to be a culinary favorite, as people do eat with their eyes first. And like life, Instagram keeps evolving. 
You can now not only post photos and share stories, but you can create reels, host IG lives, connect with other apps, and more. So embrace the gram. It's worth the investment. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have my guest joining me. It is Fanny Gerson. She's the chef and founder of La New Yorkina, a Mexican ice cream company and sweets company based in New York City, and of Fan Fan Donuts, a new donut shop in Bed-Stuy, New York City. A graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, Fanny has worked in a range of fine dining kitchens around the world. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Gourmet, Fine Cooking, and more. She is a James Beard nominee and author of multiple cookbooks, including Mexican Ice Cream, Paletas, and My Sweet Mexico. Without further ado, Fanny, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sherry. It's so great to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and there's so much... So much sweet stuff to talk about. <laughs> um, seriously, I was I was like this. The, the research for this show was kind of I had to say kind of killing me here. Like you know, uh, I just I kept getting got so hungry. <laughs> um, that's good. That's good. Yeah, Thank you no. for the tip. See, I always sometimes you know like I'm deep in the kitchen. I'm like, oh wait, I need to. I need to make a post about it. And <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I was also, I was on your Instagram accounts and, and you, you guys do a really nice job at, at promoting um, your brand. And I, I think that was, I was thinking of that when I, when I put my tip together. So, well, thank you. We try. You're welcome. And <laughs> we try. so let's, let's go back a little bit to how you got started in the industry. Um, do you want to share with us a bit about your childhood and what initially got you into sweets and wanting to be a chef? Yeah. Uh, so I was born and raised in Mexico City. And, um, you know, I think I discovered my love for food at a very, very young age. <laughs> I've always been a good eater and always had a sweet tooth for sure. Um, but uh, I never even thought that this could be um, like a career when I was growing up or anything like that. So when it came time to think about what I was going to do, you know, when I graduated high school, I looked into mainly art schools. I knew I wanted to do something creative and, uh, you know, I didn't know because back then, you know, um, there weren't any female chefs I knew of to begin with. Uh, there were no, I think at the time there were maybe two culinary schools in Mexico, which I didn't even know about till later. Uh, we didn't have any, you know, social media that would tell you or, you know, cooking channels or anything like that. So it wasn't even a thought and um, and then I went to spend a year in Israel after high school. And, you know, there I met this guy who told me his mother had a cooking school in Mexico. And I was like, wait a minute, you mean like an actual cooking school, like a career? You know, I'm just like, yeah, it was an associate degree. So I called my parents and I'm like, oh, my God. Could, did you know? <laughs> and uh, and they were not you know, so cool with it. <laughs> right. They, you know, and once I get an idea in my head, I just, you know, I'm quite stubborn that way. My dad likes to tell me I get married to my ideas and it 
so true. Like once they land and I said, well, I really want to do it. And I heard then I learned about the CIA and the Cordon Bleu. And, you know, and I said, I, I wanted to go there. And they said, why don't you go to the school in Mexico for two years? And if you still want to pursue the career, you can go. But they thought I was going to just get it out of my system and then pursue other things. The funny thing is, is that what they really wanted me to pursue is art. So it's not like they wanted me to do something practical. <laughs> um, and so that was the that was the beginning of it. Okay, so you convinced, I'm guessing you convinced your parents um, that you could or you want to go to the CIA because that's where you ended up. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, they really and tried. And what, what, I mean, after school, did you, where did you gain restaurant experience? I know you, you were abroad a bit in Spain, Um what, what yeah. was the career path? So uh, first, you know, as a foreign student, like most people at the CIA do their externship in the middle of the program. And as a foreign student, just because of visas, I don't know if it's changed now, but you had the option to do it in the middle or at the end. And uh, so I did it at the end and I went to San Sebastian, Spain, to this amazing restaurant called Aquelarre. And um, and then after that, I went back to Mexico briefly, but I really just wanted to come back. To, I just I always dreamed of, you know, living in New York, but it wasn't easy because I needed to find a place that would sponsor my visa. And, you know, that's it, there's a lot of careers where this is very common, you know, like people that are lawyers or, you know, financial institutions or things like that. But, you know, cooking is not, it's changed a bit, but it was not the most common thing. So, you know, I needed first to apply for jobs, uh, you know, without any experience whatsoever. And then if I got an offer, I'd be like, hey, by the way, would you like to sponsor me? And, you know, being sponsored is like a lengthy process. And I was like, I'll take care of it. And, you know, and so I just had to find different programs and different things. Uh, and that was an added challenge because, you know, the visas have a certain expiration period. You know, most of them, depending on what it is, it's between like one and two years. And then I had to find another one and another place. And so you don't really have an opportunity to create uh, mentorships or also if you are in a place that you really don't like, you're kind of stuck and uh, and so that was very difficult and disheartening, but I just really wanted to be here and get as much experience as I could in, you know, in, in different restaurants. And so that's that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. So so then what led you to open La Nuragina? Um and and what was that that like? I know um, you you launched at the Hester Street Fair and um, it kind of uh, uh, was, it kind of was, it was very successful from what I understand. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, after, you know, many years in different um, restaurants, uh, you know, I really wanted to write a cookbook. And so I spent a year when I had the opportunity, you know, that's like a long story, but when I had the opportunity and I had the book deal to write my first cookbook, My Sweet Mexico, I spent a year pretty much traveling around Mexico, interviewing and trying to document um, as much information and anecdotes, 
uh, for the book. And that experience really changed me. And I knew that when I came back, I really wanted to have my own business. Uh, by then, I had a green card. So, you know, I didn't depend on, you know, being sponsored or anything like that. But the reason why I wanted to have my own business wasn't like for this entrepreneurial you know, bug or anything like that. It was more like I just, I wanted the creative freedom. And when I wrote the book, I felt there was so much more to tell about the sweetness of Mexico that didn't make it into the book. I wanted to celebrate it and I wanted to continue just doing as much as I could. And and I didn't know exactly what kind of sweet business. And I actually, you know, my dad's approval has always been very important to me. And, you know, I would I would call him up and be like, "Okay, so this is the idea for the shop that I have. And I would explain it to him and he would be like, no, that's not going to (laughs) work. And then one day he actually got really fed up with me uh, and he said, you know, you always say the same idea because I wanted to have kind of like a confections, a Mexican confection shop. Uh, And he said, you just change the, the candies that but you say the same thing. So do whatever you want. And uh, he got really, like, truly upset. (laughs) And then not long after that, one day I had a dream, literally a dream, that I was going to open a Mexican ice cream shop in New York. And I called him up and I said, Dad, you know, I had this dream and this is this this feels right. Like, I I don't care. Of course I cared. But (laughs) I don't care what you say. Um, I think this is a great idea. And then he was quiet for a second and then he said yeah, that's actually a great idea because there's always ice cream in different cultures and that's a great way, you know, for pe- to introduce them to, to flavors from a different country. You're going to have to figure out what to do in the winter. But, and so, so it started like that. And then I thought, well, instead of investing in ice cream machines and finding a kitchen that had, um, you know, machines like that, there were all these logistical issues and cost that were costly and just, challenging. And so I thought, well, why don't I start with paletas, which are, you know, Mexican ice pops and just test the idea. You know, it's a much less risky proposition, you know, you know, financially and just to see how New Yorkers respond to to the flavors of Mexico. And so I went to Mexico. I got some molds that were actually harder to find than I than I realized. I rented a kitchen That was a bakery in the day, and I had two jobs at the time. And when I was finished with my second shift, I would go... I had a friend of mine, Hannah, uh, who helped me out that summer. Um, And so she would start the paletas, and I would go there to see if they were kind of frozen enough for me to put the stick in, and then wait all night until to see if they were ready to be unmolded. (laughs) It was crazy. It was crazy, but that's how we started. And so there was this fair, like you mentioned, the Hester Street Fair that was starting out at the same time. We signed up. There was a thing written about them in New York Magazine when I hadn't even figured out where I was going to make them. Um, And then, and we made about 900, almost 900 paletas for the whole weekend, not knowing. I mean, we knew there was a lot of buzz, but we still had no idea what to expect. And we were hoping, you know, aiming to sell, you know, 500 in the weekend. And as I was loading the cart, I actually fractured my nose (laughs) the first day of La Neorquina. And uh, but I still, you know, my nose was bleeding. I was like, don't worry about it. We have to. I was filled with adrenaline and we filled the cart. 
which we kept at a um, parking lot and had to push it about seven blocks from the parking lot and then another seven or eight blocks to the market. It was quite heavy. And we actually sold out of our entire stock within like five hours. And it was crazy. Wow, that's amazing. So just from there, you, I mean, then what, I mean, this is back in what year, 2010? Um, 2010. Mm -hmm. So over the past 11 years, uh, tell us a little bit of how you've grown the company um, because you're, uh, I, I, you have a, a brick and mortar place and also some pop-ups now. And I know you're also online and can deliver anywhere. Yeah. So si- since then, um, you know, I always say it's been like, um, two steps forward, one step back kind of thing, <laughs> you know, like we, uh, we since then, you know, we have we we're in a kitchen in uh, Red Hook, which is like our own. We're not in a shared kitchen space anymore. But the kitchen that I'm in currently, I actually uh, was flooded in the hurricane, and so I lost my entire uh, equipment um, then. And so, you know, we've definitely had our, our our struggles. But since then, you know, we we expanded beyond just paletas. Uh, and even it's even since the beginning, like I always knew, like, so if you look at the logo, it says Mexican ice and sweets. So I wanted to leave sort of the sweets open ended to whatever that meant. Right. So we do ice creams uh, that we sell to restaurants. Uh, we do a lot of catering. We sell boxed um, paletitas, which are mini ice pops to you know specialty stores and, you know, some groceries like Whole Food Market locally. Uh, and we ship nationwide and we do all sorts of, you know, Mexican, every, everything is rooted in Mexico. Of course, we do like churros. We do these delicious things called chamoyadas, which I don't know if you've ever had, but, you know, they are kind of like, uh, think of it as like between a slushy and a sorbet with a pickle plum sauce and salted chili. Oh, yeah. Uh, we do babka <laughs> ice cream sandwiches. Also, so that bridges both my Jewish heritage and my Mexican <laughs> heritage as well. And we do, during the Jewish holidays, we do, uh, you know, like some things that also tie in into, you know, both of those parts of who, who I am. Um, but, you know, we had a brick and mortar uh, that we opened uh, like October. In October, we turned four years uh, but sadly, because of the pandemic, we actually had to close. Um, and so that was really rough. <laughs> that sucks. Oh, uh, but sure. we had to I'm do sorry. it because, you know, that was the only thing we could do to save the company. And the landlord wasn't willing to to negotiate uh, with us, unfortunately. And there were just no students, there were no tourists, and we were in the West Village, so those, you know, two were a big part of it. The restaurants that we were selling to were closed. So last summer, we didn't have, you know, any business except, you know, for our store. And even that, because the city was empty, like we were doing some numbers, some days that we're doing numbers that we would normally do, like, in December. It was crazy. And so we actually uh, pivoted like <laughs> completely uh, and 
we started doing savory meals during the pandemic. So we uh, did in partnership with uh, different organizations for the first, I'm going to say like four or five months, cooked meals uh, for different, you know, hospitals and communities in need. We did a lot of tamales to donate to, uh, you know, workers and to different churches that were serving, you know, primarily like immigrant communities. And it was, you know, the whole um, purpose was really to keep the lights on uh, as a business and to give work to as many as employees that we could because we initially had to lay off everybody. And uh, so now, you know, we're, we, we, we made it. <laughs> I feel we made it. They made it through, and for now, we're able to keep the company, uh, even though we had to close the the store. So that's why I say, you know, it's um, it's a two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. And you know, we're working on, you know, uh, hopefully launching later this year, like our first like line of pints um, to put out in like uh, supermarkets and stuff. So so we're very excited about that. Well, I know last year was so tough. I really, I really feel for you. Um, and I'm glad you were, I'm really glad you were, you're able to, to make it through and hopefully seeing the light at the end of this, this tunnel. I, and I also have to say, I mean, my, my experiences with all of your desserts, but your paletas, I always think of, of being on the high line and grabbing them on a, on a hot day. I don't know if that's a location you're going back to. Um, is it? Yeah, I mean, we just opened there a couple of weeks ago. We were so excited when we got the email that it was opening this year because last year, obviously, it was closed. Um, and we are just, I mean, so excited to be back. Being at the Highline is so special, you know, just the, the park itself is incredible. So, if, you know, whoever's listening who hasn't been there, um, you know, when you come to New York, you definitely have to, to visit <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's the perfect it's a perfect treat to have. And what's what's the difference between Mexican ice cream and I'd say American ice cream or Italian ice cream or um, I mean flavor profile wise? Yeah. So, well, you know, I would say uh, there's a lot of sort of tropical flavors, of course, that are you know like mango and tamarind and coconut, passion fruit, like a lot of fruit based. So I would say if you go to a, an ice cream shop in Mexico, for example, as opposed to like a gelateria or a, or a traditional um, American ice cream shop, you know, maybe here or in Italy, you're going to see just a couple of choices in terms of sorbet. But if you go to a Mexican ice cream shop, you're going to see at least half of the case filled with sorbet. It's just as exciting. It's delicious. So I think that's, you know, one of the biggest, it's very fruit forward. Um, another thing is we like a lot of, we, you know, a lot of the flavors have chili, some kind of chili, but the chili is not meant to just be completely spicy. You know, it's meant to have flavor. Um, so for example, like in Oliver locations and anytime we do an event we always have this salted chili called tahin that we sprinkle on top of the ice pops and it's it's incredible but a lot of people that have never had it they're like what really like you know it's not just chili it's chili salt and lime 
altogether. So I think those are the, you know, the main differences that I, that I think of, but also in terms of the ice cream per se, like the ice cream in Mexico is closer to gelato in the sense that it has less fat and less uh, air, what we call overrun. Um, and, uh, and, and traditionally, and you still find some places in Mexico, uh, these things called nieves de garrafa, which are hand paddled ice cream that are really special. Yeah. Well, once again, I'm getting hungry listening to you. And, <laughs> um, let me ask you my question for my last guest on episode 290. I had on chef and owner Anthony Mangieri of Una Pizza Napolitana. He's a pioneer in Neapolitan style pizza in the United States. And he wants to know, how did you get interested in donuts? Is there a donut kind of culture in Mexican cuisine? And what's the connection between donuts and churros? And is one more difficult to make than the other? Because we have to get into it now because, yes, yeah. you also are the queen of donuts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but I do love them and I love making them. So, and that's a good question. Um, so I actually, uh, well, in Mexico, donuts are you know, I had donuts growing up, but they're not like as quintessential as they are here in the States. Um, and I kind of stumbled upon it. So a former boss of mine who then became a friend who lent me his kitchen uh, to do the recipe testing for my sweet Mexico um, when I came back to New York, he, you know, he had this space um, uh, that I think it used to be like a fried chicken place or something like that. And then he said, so I'm taking over the space and I'm thinking I want to do like a donut place, a donut shop, you know, kind of like a gourmet donut shop. And I went to see it, you know, it's, it's in a neighborhood called Bed-Stuy. And at the time there was nothing, when I say nothing, there was nothing around there. Um, not the most obvious place to to open a gourmet donut shop. And also, like, here's a French guy and a Mexican, you know, woman, you know, doing something that's so American. And uh, and I but I said, well, why not? <laughs> you know, and I had made a few donuts, like, in different restaurants that I worked at, but I certainly didn't have, you know, like, I didn't grow up making them or didn't grow up, like, eating them. But that was kind of, like, our approach. We talked a lot about... Okay, so, you know, if, like, why aren't there more donut shops, like, handmade the way you have bakeries? You know, like, what would make the best donut that we could? So we kind of geeked out and talked a lot about, you know, what what makes a great donut. But we set out to do the best donut that we could, create a recipe, you know, that was our own. So it wasn't like we were trying to imitate something or recreate something from our childhood. It was more like, okay, well, these are the elements. And I kept testing and testing a lot of doughs. And I had something in my mind that I was trying to get to. And the moment I did, I called him over and I said, okay, so, um, you know, I think I have it. I think I got it. And this was also in 2010 because basically he told me, um, well, what are you going to do now that it's not, you know, I, paleta weather, it's, you're not going to sell ice cream. And so that's when I started testing out. And so when uh, I called him, he tried it and then he said, OK, we're opening in two weeks. <laughs> and then we started out actually with a French fry fryer um, and we just 
opened the doors and then uh, it was called um, Dough Donuts. And we were just started, you know, getting out and we started getting busier. We started to get another uh, fryer, eventually two. Then there was like, um, you know, a lot of cafes starting to ask. And, you know, from that, it just kind of blew up. And then we um, eventually partnered up, you know, with with some folks and we opened in the city. Um, and then I can't really get into it for, for legal reasons, but in February we separated from our former investors. And so my original partner and I uh, started over and we opened Fan Fan Donuts in the same place that we started Dough. Um, you know, with a whole new recipe and, but with all the knowledge that we had acquired, you know, for all those for 10 years and we kind of just started over. Yeah. Well, I have to, I mean, the pun has to come in that I, I am a fan fan (laughs) (laughs) and, and I mean, from, from having your donuts at dough and now going out to Bed-Stuy and, and, um, and trying your new fan fan donuts. I mean, you're <laughs> you you really are a queen of donuts. I mean, you're <laughs> um, and there's there's so much variety too. I mean, what I hadn't heard of fan fans actually before you opened. Um, how did you? I thought it was just a, like a. Uh, I thought you came up with the name kind of like a pun off your name, Fanny. But is there is yeah. there more to it? No, well, it is. And I'm sorry, I did forget to answer one question you had before, which is like churros and donuts. Donuts are much more, uh, I think they're much more tricky to make. Um, but there's a, but, but churros definitely have their own, you know, just because of the yeast and, you know, because we don't have a controlled environment. So that's what makes it, uh, you know, a little more um difficult to make but definitely churros we make a lot of churros at la Mirquina, and it's not an easy task because it's it, it's a lot of the arm work <laughs> um but to sort of answer your question so the name fan fan i wanted something that was you know kind of personal but also that you know kind of was a bit onomatopoeic that you could say in different languages that you know, if you did, that was kind of memorable and, you know, hopefully catchy. And Fan Fan is one of one of my nicknames that my sister calls me. Um, and my brothers called me once in a while that too. Um, so that was the, the first thing. But also it's like you're a fan of Fan Fan. And, you know, I don't know, it was like the, the one that we could agree on. And then, you know, I really wanted to do, uh, for a while, I'd been wanting to do these eclair-inspired donuts. So in the sense of, you know, kind of the shape, because you have long johns, which are long, rectangular donuts, but they're kind of big. And, um, you know, and then you have like the round-filled ones. But I really wanted to do something the way that the eclair seems so purposeful, they're so delicate, you know, and I wanted to do a donut inspired by that. So the way that you would approach an eclair, but also, you know, I want to create donuts that are special and it feels like an affordable luxury, but they're not, but it's still a donut, you know, like you go sometimes to these very fancy chocolate shops, which, you know, which I love. I'm not dissing them in any way, shape or form, but sometimes you feel like you almost have to be quiet when you go in there 
you know, like they're so elegant and they're so precious. So I don't want to create something that's precious, but I do want to create something that feels special. And so I was with some friends and I'm like, I don't know what to call these long ones, you know, and I don't want to do a name kind of like the cronut, you know, that combines because it's not really a combination of two things. It's just inspired by them. And my friend goes, well, why don't you just call them fan fans? Like, that's the name of your shop. <laughs> and that's it. the first thing I knew that I wanted to make before anything. So, so that's, that was it. Well, that's, that, that, that's why I hadn't heard of it before. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we you invented it. You invented it. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Um, but so, but you got, so you opened, when, when did the, when did Fan Fan Donuts open? It was, I mean. I, I we mean, just opened in October. Times. I'm sorry. Yeah. We opened in the middle of the pandemic in October. I mean, how did you manage to do that? <laughs> it was crazy. I mean, it's been just, uh, and, and we closed knowing that we, you know, we might have to close. Uh, I mean, we opened just as I was thinking that I might have to close La Mioquina. I mean, it was crazy. Well, we had, you know, we had actually a different space when we separated from our former partners. We had a different space in a, you know, in a neighborhood that was nearby. Um, that was next, ne the next neighborhood over in Clinton Hill, right next to the Navy Yard. Um, that was already almost fully built. I mean, it was fully built out, but we were missing some things. But then when it was a very big space, because we, you know, one thing that's very important to us, especially having to start over, is to, you know, build community and uh, to have a space. I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes people are always like in a rush and, you know, having just a moment or in the space to sit down and really enjoy each other's company or yours or your own company and or just, you know, be mindful. Um, but this was a very big space that we had uh, with sort of living room type places. And then the original space, we were going to do something else completely. We were going to do a wholesale bakery out of it. Um, we were going to call it Bernard's. <laughs> so we kept the original space, but for something else. But then when we realized we were not going to be able to afford to keep both places, we said, well, we have to let go of the bigger space because we're, it just doesn't make sense. We can't open a place like that in the middle of the pandemic. You know, you, you can't when it's the opposite of what you're able to do, right? Like you can't be with one another. You can only have limited spaces and and it just felt, and we said, well, you know, we, and I actually always wanted to, like, uh, if we were going to open again, in the original space. So it kind of worked out that way. But we had, the, the this space where Fan Fan is wasn't decorated or wasn't, you know, planned the way that we had designed the other one. It was a raw space because it was meant to be a wholesale operation. Um, but we actually decided to keep that. Uh, first of all, well, we couldn't afford it. <laughs> but afterwards we said, let's just, I, I kind of like that, you know, the transparency. We wanted people to be able to see what we do, but also the kitchen to be able to see, um, you know, the, the joy that we bring to, to clients. And to be able to, I get to do something for a living that, that I love, that's creative, that I'm passionate about. Um, and one of the best things about what I do is to bring joy uh, to me 
And, you know, especially in the last year and a half, to be able to do that and to open in the middle of the pandemic to give, I mean, there were people that were like literally crying, um, you know, when they came in to just, you know, uh, to give them something to look forward to that, that was that was different, to distract them or to, you know, even if it was momentarily to just make them happy. And so that was very special to us. Yeah, you definitely bring joy to people. You bring joy to me, for sure. It's <laughs> <laughs> success. And on that note, let's take a little break. We'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll have industry news discussion, my solo dining experience of the week, and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Diageo Bar Academy is a free online resource for hospitality professionals, offering resources for bartenders at all levels. Whether you are a bartender, barback, or manager, or completely new to the industry, Diageo Bar Academy has easy to access resources to help you learn new skills and stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends, including trending flavors and ingredients, batched cocktails and cocktails for delivery, and responsible service advice. Diageo has a training module for everyone at any skill level. Diageo Bar Academy also provides everything you need to raise the bar and enhance your career, including masterclass events with global industry experts and quizzes to test your knowledge. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. Again, that's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. As we know, and we often discuss here on my podcast, running a restaurant is no easy feat. Talk is your solution. It's built by passionate restaurateurs for the ever-changing hospitality industry, and it's the world's only unified reservation, takeout, and event management platform. Many of the restaurants that I work with in PR and restaurants that I dine at use Talk to offer special tastings, book their chef's counters, manage their alfresco dining, and host events. Just the other day, I was on talk and I booked a solo open-air dining reservation at one of my favorite seasonal waterfront spots in New York City, Grand Banks. I can't wait to go. And I recently scored a reservation at Wiley Dufresne's Hot New Stretch Pizza at Bread's Bakery, also on talk. Plus, my hospitality clients love dreaming up ideas for the platform, as Talk allows them to easily manage them and drive revenue. And look, we know that change happens on the fly. With Talk, you can easily and rapidly update offerings, floor plans, and pacing in real time. So take control of your business 
Make the switch to talk today to reach millions of guests and drive more revenue. Learn more at exploretalk.com slash join. That's exploretalk.com slash join. E-X-P-L-O-R-E-T-O-C-K dot com slash join. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Fanny Gerson. She's the chef and founder of La New Yorkina and the chef and founder or partner of Fan Fan Donuts in New York City. So we're talking all about fabulous ice cream and donuts today. <laughs> so Fanny, it's time for my speed round game. Uh, what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay. You ready? <laughs> yep. All right. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Cocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Mmm. Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Ah, that's hard. Uh, communal table. How about tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping. Okay. Donuts or ice cream? Ice cream and donuts. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. How about tacos or burritos? Oh, no, no. No, no. That's, that's not even a, a contest. Tacos. Tacos. Okay. Uh, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Hmm. Uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. And actually, I, I, I want to go back to my sample one. Chocolate or vanilla? Vanilla. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was like, wait, I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Are you chocolate or vanilla? I'm chocolate. Um, I'm, See, I love we could, we could, we could go out cause then, you know, we each have our own. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, I love dessert, but I'm definitely a, a chocolate person and I'm always surprised when people aren't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, like my husband's that way, but like if I go somewhere, I'm always looking to see what's the fruit or a custard that they have on the menu. And then chocolate will be the last thing that I look at, which I love chocolate. Don't get yeah. me wrong, but my go-to is you know, something else. Yeah. Well, that's like, I like when I, when I dine out with other people and we, if we share a dessert and they, they pick it and it's, I would, I tend to always go for the chocolate, but they pick something else I wouldn't typically get. And I'm always like, Oh wow. I like this too. Yeah. It's fabulous. Yeah, I like, I like the whole sharing idea. Yeah. Definitely. Me too. Me too. Okay. So for industry news, I picked out an article that was recently in the New York times and it's entitled TikTok, the fastest way on earth to become a food star. The app offers explosive growth for content creators. Gen Z cooks are taking advantage. And this was by Taylor Lorenz. Um, So I know in my tip, I talked about Instagram, but here we are with TikTok, which I'm, I'm on the app, but I, I have not gotten into it, but I'm not, I'm not Gen Z. (laughs) (laughs) 
But it's pretty amazing. It was a pretty long piece just talking about how all these Gen Zers have have launched careers using the app. And a lot lot of them or most are self-taught. They've learned how to cook on YouTube and Food Network. And they've they now have millions of followers and really have launched these cooking careers. Um, There's a whole community called Food Talk, like food, F-O-T-O-K. so are you, are you, what's your take on TikTok? Um, are you, are I you- am completely clueless. <laughs> <laughs> I am very, you know, untech savvy. I'm very sort of like old fashioned. And, uh, you know, I feel like I, 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 you know, I wish we had somebody, it sounds like I wish I had somebody in my team that could, uh, be part of that and engage with this this new kind of audience, but I know nothing about it, you know, like to be to have like a, an opinion. But I think it's fascinating that you know the way that I mean it's definitely changed. Like social media has changed the the industry um, in some ways better than others, and that depends on you know your your you know your purpose of what you do, how you do it, why you do it. Um, but it also creates platforms for different audiences. So, you know, I'm definitely going to look into that article, but I'm, I, I'm just like, wow. <laughs> I feel like there's all these subworlds I know nothing about because I'm in my like, little bubble just trying, to, just trying to, you know, make a living and trying to, you know, get through the day and get to my son and... You know? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. I mean, I think TikTok can also like like a lot of social media apps, but I think in particular you can really get sucked into just scrolling through and watching all these videos and um Yeah. I, I mean it's 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 pretty amazing though that people are launching careers um from the app yeah. and that and also that it there's like some viral food crazes that have come from yeah. like, that uh, it's just, it's, yeah, it's a new generation, a way to, you know, to share. I think there was something, there was something in the article talking about how, um, their success comes a bit from being like, because the, these, these young chefs on it aren't, or young cooks aren't professionally trained. They're more self, they're self-taught. So there's something about they're more relatable to their audience. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. But also, you know, I wonder if, you know, especially the last year where people have spent a lot of time, you know, in their computers and, you know, diving in and also creating outlets for themselves, you know, so connecting with one another that way is probably, I imagine, would have something to do with it. But I think it's it's interesting, you know, definitely going to, but, yeah. but I don't, yeah. It is. It is interesting. Makes me feel old, <laughs> which I normally don't. But yeah, I don't know what it would have been like to be to be a kid or a teenager growing up with all this social media. You know, it's, no. it's definitely a different world now. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's cool. It's um, yeah. Check out the article. I mean, it was it was a big piece in the New York Times. I mean, it's yeah. I'm definitely going to check it out for sure. It a lot definitely of work, sounds but. like an interesting read. <laughs> <laughs> so um, cool. All right. So for my solo dining experience this week, it's at Stretch Pizza at Bread's Bakery. Here's the rundown. 
The location, 18 East 16th Street, Union Square area, New York City. The concept, it's a pizza residency. The chef, Wiley Dufresne. He's a Michelin star chef. I'm sure people listening to the show know Wiley, formerly of WD-50, and he, he also has Dew's Donuts. And um, Bread's Bakery's owner is Gaddy Pleg. So why did I go? Well, Wiley was making pizza. I was curious. I wanted to check it out. I knew it would be great. So, um, And I'm also a big fan of bread. So that is why I went. Uh, my experience. So this new pizza concept launched in April. Um, it's on Talk, a uh, sponsor, our fabulous sponsor for this show. And um, there was a wait list going immediately. He was only open three days or he still is only open three days a week. So um, I was on the wait list and then I got a notice, a uh, reservation came av- available. So I made it for a random date in June. I'd had no connection with this date, but what do you know? I show up, well, I placed my order online. Um, uh, it's like a pre-order and mark my calendar. And then I show up and it happened to be Wiley's birthday. So Wiley's oh. there and all these industry people I know who are very good friends with him are there. And Wiley's uh, wife, Miley Carpenter, who's also in the industry, um, is there with their kids. And it, so my solo dining experience turned into me kind of crashing their party. <laughs> and um, I, 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 I made my way into, into Bread's and I, I told them I was there and I they said they'd send out my order for me um, and they did. And so I ended up having what I ordered as well as uh, some of some other pizzas and things that they had. And it was, it was a really cool experience um, with, with friends and totally unexpected. So what did I get? I got their classic New York pizza with tomato sauce, mozzarella, and Parmesan. And I also got a breakfast calzone filled with scrambled eggs, Munster and American cheeses and um, among other things I tried, he had a couch potato pizza with fingerlings, sour cream, rosemary, scallions, mozzarella, and Parmesan. Um, and Gaddy actually also, when I left, sent me home with some bread treats, like their famous chocolate babka and these awesome granola cookies and their challah bread. So it was, I had, I had quite a feast that day. Um, my take, the pizzas were, were, were wonderful, very tasty. Uh, the classic had, was very cheesy, had a nice red sauce, a great crust, and the calzone was super, super delicious, fluffy eggs, um, a nice combo. Uh, the ambiance, it's a, a casual spot um, outside is where I sat. They had a, a covered patio up front, which is good because it did rain at some point when I was there. Um, and I'd say it's perfect for pizza lovers or carb lovers. Uh, interesting tidbit. So Wiley got hooked on pizza making during the pandemic, uh, during lockdown. He kind of just got obsessed with it and and went down the rabbit hole as I read an article. Um, so that kind of goes with my tip last week with Anthony Mangieri about getting obsessed with pizza. Uh, personal fun fact. So Wiley and, and, and Gaddy uh, um, previously have collaborated actually with me Um for my host conference last January 2020, they both were partners uh, with the conference, providing us with delicious treats to eat all day. We had Dew's Donuts, and we also had pastries and breakfast and lunch, all from breads. And so uh, they were super supportive, and it's nice to go back and support them. And happy birthday, Chef. 
what a what a crazy coincidence. And also I'll throw in there on his, on his birthday, Wiley was getting his kids tickets to the Harry Potter store that just opened. And in the middle of this party, their their turn came up and they left and they went to see Harry Potter and they came back. <laughs> so um, it was it was a pretty cool night. Um, the cost of my meal was $26. That's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. And their website is exploretalk.com um, backslash stretch pizza and also breadsbakery.com. So there we go. Pizza by Wiley. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, awesome. Yeah, it was, you know, it's New York is, I mean, life is funny, but it was really, I, you know, I just thought I was going to have leftover pizza. And what do you know? Um, I was sharing my pizza and I didn't have leftovers and, <laughs> but I did have. It bread. sounds like a great New York moment. You know? Yeah, like, it really was. It really was, especially now with the pandemic and this year that I haven't, I haven't been as social or seen many people I knew. Yeah. So it was a nice surprise. No, and he's um, he's so talented. I would love to try his pizza. I didn't know about this this thing. See, I'm so cooked in to my work that <laughs> yeah, I need, no. to, I need to get on that wait list. Just yeah, so, get on the wait know. list, and it's um, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. He can do it. He's he's so talented. He can do anything, and um, yeah. yeah, it's great pizza. I mean, I love pizza so. Okay, it's time for the final question. My next guest is Ellen Yin. She's the co-founder and owner of High Street Hospitality Group, which includes A Kitchen Plus Bar, Fork, High Street Philly, High Street Provisions in Philadelphia, and High Street on Hudson in Manhattan. Um, Fanny, please ask I love that place. for Ellen. Oh, to ask her something. Yeah, you can ask her whatever, what, anything you'd like. Oh, that, just one thing. Um, I would say, you know, what is the one thing that has, like, sort of surprised her during the pandemic, you know, about herself? Um, and, you know... In, in that that is going to help her or, or change her in any way, um, you know, in, in, in what we do. Because we could phrase that better. But do you, yeah, <laughs> do you no, I, I got it. It's great. It's great. I will ask her. I mean, she's she's got a lot, a lot of places, even even more than I, she did, I think, a couple of years ago. So she's got a lot on her plate. So I'm going to yeah. find it out. Yeah, but uh, but I love that place. I love High on Hudson. Big fan. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. I'm a fan. Um, so, and of course, as I said, I'm a fan, fan, fan of yours. And <laughs> I greatly appreciate you joining me today. Um, I wish you continued success, and I hope I hope things get easier than this this past year through the pandemic. Uh -huh. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the, the kind words and the support and the time, you know, in, uh, you know, in chatting with you. Yeah, my pleasure. And I hope to see you soon, too. And, and yes. for your treats, I'll have to make another trip out to bed soon. Yeah, you know, or maybe we'll run into, you know, when I signed up for the pizza, we'll get to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
seriously, these things happen. That's um, so, yeah, that would be fun. And I'm glad I brought your attention to it too. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Fanny. Thank you so much. My guest today has been Fanny Gerson. She's the chef and founder of La New Yorkina and Fan Fan Donuts in New York City. Her website is lanewyorkina.com and fan-fandonuts.com. And on social media, you can follow her at La New Yorkina, La, at Fan Fan Donuts, and at Fanny Gerson. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, Sherry Bayer to comment, AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also an iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang, and thanks again to Fanny. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then. Stay safe and well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.